You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So what's the tally? How many people have ever, ever been into space? Millions? Thousands? No, the figure is 536. And that's a half century after the beginning of the so-called space age. 536 people have been into space. This club's more exclusive than the Oyster Bay Croquet and Crochet Society. Never heard of that? Well, exactly. So what's the deal? Why the members-only policy for the final frontier? After all, in 1542, 50 years after Columbus, tons of people had set foot in the New World, and they weren't mostly government employees, unlike our space explorers. But that's all about to change. I'm Seth Shostak. And I'm Molly Bentley, and this is Big Picture Science, where we step back to give the wide-angle view on science and technology— and where they're going. And in this case, we may be going with them straight into space. Ace, 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 because the final frontier is a changing. Yes, it's about to become more crowded with activity, but it's also on the threshold of becoming accessible to ordinary folk in, in other ways, from a radical new telescope that will turn anyone into a research astronomer to the mining of exotic materials from asteroids that may be essential to your great, 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 great grandkids. Plus, a shakeup among the countries that have traditionally dominated space is a communist nation once again about to become the leader in space activity. Time for blast off. Wanted, a fearless risk taker, enjoys speed, heights, resistant to claustrophobia and motion sickness. Well, it sounds like a job for an astronaut. Of moderate physical fitness. Well, okay, maybe not. With $250,000 in disposable income. Yes, all that separates you and the boundary of space is a quarter of a million dollars. Once the purview of our best and brightest, our most fit and fearless space, well, now to go into it, all you need is fearlessness. No, fearlessness to write that check. Right, that's right. And you can decide whether parting with $250,000 makes you the brightest. But the point is, for a price, and of course that price is going to come down, a view of planet Earth from 62 miles up could be yours. A number of private commercial space companies are winding up their test flights. They're poised to begin selling tickets for the greatest show off Earth. All right. Uh, for the record, if you could just give me your name and your title. Okay. Leonard David, and I'm a space journalist writing for uh, Space.com and uh, AIAA Aerospace America Engineering Magazine. Well, it sounds like that's a lot of space in your... A lot of space. In your I've been business card. writing about space for a long, long time. Well, then, Leonard, since you've been writing about space for a long, long time, do you think that you will ever go up into space? No, I, I'm actually uh, groundbound. I want to see everybody else go. Uh, I'm not too big on these loud explosions that shove you into space. Well, let's talk. Let's talk about those loud explosions that may shove other people into space. Right. Space tourism may no longer be blue sky, as it were. 
there are some companies that are planning on taking people up into space one day. Which companies are the, are the top companies that are actually planning to do this? Well, you know, this year, clearly the uh, Virgin Galactic, Sir Richard Branson, putting money into uh, a space line operation, suborbital. This will be a, a vehicle that's been flight-tested numbers of times now. It had three powered flights. It'll take people up 62 miles up, 100 kilometers, and uh, give the thrill of a lifetime to uh, six passengers and uh, a couple pilots. Okay, that's one of the companies. What are the other companies that are involved in this? Well, the other companies to watch, in my mind, are the ones that out there in Mojave, uh, California, is Xcor Aerospace. Probably another candidate to keep an eye on is Bigelow Aerospace in, in uh, Las Vegas. Well, Leonard, are these projects, are they more than, say, the preoccupation of wealthy space and science lovers, or are we talking about technology that really might take the average person up into space one day? In my mind, we're seeing the Wright brothers. We were standing there in the early 1900s watching the Wright brothers on uh, Kitty Hawk. I think a lot of this is very similar. Uh, we're way beyond bailing wire and canvas uh, <laughs> that the Wright brothers use, but getting these pieces of hardware to work reliably, and you know something's going on when the FAA is already involved to certify these things. Are they safe for public transportation? Let's just look at one of those flights, what that ride might be like. In Virgin Galactic, um, as you said, will take passengers up to uh, 62 miles into space, which I believe is the demarcation for space. Now, and you, want... get, you get your astronaut wings and you go that high. <laughs> okay. And you also probably for... Uh, you know, $250,000 a seat. I hope you get to keep the space helmet. I don't, I don't know what they're going to give everybody, but it should be fun. <laughs> okay, let's, let's come back to the, the, the ticket for that ride. Um, can you describe what that ride would be like? Okay, well, the carrier craft that takes the spaceship to, which is a rocket plane that holds the six passengers and two pilots, once you're up at altitude of fifty or 60,000 feet, the mothership, the big uh, carrier plane, uh, lets the craft loose, and then you just hit the on switch for your rocket motor, and you have the ride of a lifetime. Okay, the Spaceship 2 is, has a hybrid rocket motor, which is kind of a, a hybrid motor in the sense that it's got liquid and also a rubber matrix kind of uh, composite material, so it... It takes that force to push the spaceship straight up into the suborbital flight. And, you know, I think what the main thing that's going to come out of this is that once you've established a suborbital market, there's no doubt that uh, Richard Branson's got orbital flight in mind. Well, let's look more closely at, at this ride and what you're getting for your money. Um, I believe the price tag, as you said, is for Virgin Galactic at least, will be $250,000. Yeah. Is it more than a really fancy roller coaster ride in some ways? You're, you're going up, you're touching the boundary of, of space, you're sort of catching your breath, maybe lingering there a moment, and you're coming back down. It's all, yeah. it's all over in a few minutes, right? Yeah, it's a it's, it's multiple-minute flight, depending on the profile they take and, and from where they uh, lift off. But, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, what was the question? <laughs> well, so so the question is, who is going to be paying a quarter of a million dollars for this ride initially, and then when will it be affordable for the rest of the public? Yeah, it's 
you got to have some pretty good dollars to want to do this. But there have been movie stars sign up for it. There's some high rollers for definitely taking a high roller flight. But I think that's sort of, in history, you look at the tradition of that. I think that's sort of the way it always happens. And then Branson himself has promised that the price uh, per seat will drop. I don't know what it'll drop to, but it's still going to be you know somewhat expensive. But it'll help speed up the day of true orbital flight for people. And then going into orbit, you know, do you travel just around the Earth, which sounds great, and you get a great view of the Earth, or do you go to a destination? Maybe it will be a tourist stopover. Some kind of space hotel, orbiting space hotel? Yeah, we already have one. It's just a government-designed, large facility that that astronauts routinely go to, coming and going all the time. You mean the International Space Station? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if the astronauts want to hear it referred to as a glorified hotel. (laughs) Yeah. I do think that, you know, these companies have been formed to look at circumlunar flights that would take tourists around the moon. So, So, Leonard, these trips that you're talking about, space tourism, we're on the verge of it, whether it, it will begin with the suborbital trips and then yeah. orbital vacations around the Earth and maybe one day around the moon. So this is really happening. The thing to watch, you know, we may see the first commercial flights this year, or at least by the end of the year, a test program into an actual commercial project is, is really, we're on the wing of it. It's happening. Leonard David, thank you so much for speaking with us. Okay, thanks. Leonard David is a journalist covering space and occupying it, too. So it sounds like I don't have to be rich and have a spandex suit to go into space. Actually, you do need to be rich right now. Really? Well, that's going to be a bit of a stretch either way. (laughs) Only if you stick with the spandex. Hey, list you. Yes, you. And that's list as in... LSST, as in the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. This is a hot bit of news. The LSST is poised to be the mother of all telescopes. And that's because the Large Synoptic, you know, Synoptic Comprehensive View Survey Telescope, when built on a mountaintop in Chile, will be different than any of its big-eyed predecessors. It's going to make movies of the sky because it will be able to watch the sky change over time. In its first few years of operation, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope will image millions of galaxies and billions of stars. But that's not all. It's also expected to find millions of asteroids, including 80% of the larger ones, you know, the boulders that are as big as a football field or more. And the data of the LSST will be accessible to the public, whether you're a professional astronomer or a keen amateur, a tenured professor or a 10-year-old. These cosmic data will be yours. Mario Urich will wrangle all those beautiful bits, and there will be plenty of them pouring out of the LSST. So, Mario, this sounds like the telescope to end all telescopes. (laughs) Um, I would call it a telescope to begin a new generation of telescopes. It will be a big 8-meter telescope built in Chile that will image the sky so rapidly that every three nights we'll have a complete image of the visible sky. And we'll continue doing it for 10 years. And after that, all those images uh, will go into a database. They'll be processed. They'll be queryable. It'll be like a Google index of the entire optical sky. 
when I go to the movies and I see them portraying astronomers, certainly in the older films, right? It's some old guy in a lab coat. He wanders up the mountain, finds a telescope up there because he knows there's one there. <laughs> he just swings, swings the telescope to the sky and, you know, observes things, hoping to see something new and different. It sounds like uh, astronomy in the near future is going to be just sitting at your desk with a computer screen and uh, just uh, pouring through data that was collected by a telescope that you never saw. Yeah, sorry to disappoint you, Seth, but we're already there. I've actually worked on, on many surveys in my past career, and, and for a number of them, I've never been to the telescope, which is very depressing for someone who's an astronomer. But, but it, it, it is the direction in which we're going. The, the output of LSST will not be the telescope or the camera. It will be really the fully processed data. It will be this database. It sounds like big data comes to astronomy. I'll ask the obvious question. I'm just an astronomy enthusiast living somewhere. Can I, uh, you know, access these data too and, and do my own project? Are we going to see citizen science on, you know, the world's largest astronomical data set? Oh, yes. Um, it's... We actually have we have a, a, a whole part of the project devoted to what we call education and public outreach. And in this case, for us, that really means citizen science. We're thinking of things such as adopting, quote-unquote, a piece of the sky and then trying to understand what interesting time main events have happened there. So what has changed? Were there any supernovae that went off? And were they special in some ways? What kind of galaxies you're looking at? All of this data is going to be public. That's, that's one really important thing. So anyone will be able to log on to the database, you know, ask their queries. Really, the key thing will be to have a good idea of what you want to know and to know how to ask that, that question. Mario, maybe you can give me just some sort of idea of just how big a data set we're talking about here. Because, you know, it wasn't too long ago. I mean, I was studying astronomy as a grad student, and you would go to some telescope and put a plate you know, a photographic plate at the focus, and you could spend 20 minutes, you could spend, you know, two hours getting one picture of one galaxy. Mm -hmm. The Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, the LSST, what is it going to do during the 10 years that uh, you're forecasting it'll be observing? So we're, we're forecasting that we're going to observe about 40 billion objects. Um, half of those are going to be galaxies, half of those are going to be stars. And it, it'll be actually the first time in human history that a survey has observed more stars than there are people on Earth. So, if, you know, if we could do it, if we were allowed to do it, we could name every single star out there in the sky by someone living on Earth, and we would have you know, a factor of two more stars left over. That's one thing. But then we're not going to do it once. We're going to do it repeatedly. So we'll have about a 1,000 images of every part of the sky. So in terms of measurements, we're going to have trillions. So we're going to have about 32 trillion measurements of all these objects. So it really is a movie. You, you get an incredibly deep image of the universe, but you get not just one image, you get 1,000 images. So you know what's out there and you know how it's changing and where it changed. And it's all public. Now, that's an interesting point because astronomy traditionally doesn't know about things that might change very quickly, something that goes bump in the night, as astronomers like to describe it. But you'll be able to do that. You'll be able to see very quick events, something that just happened this afternoon and, and only took a couple hours or whatever it is, a couple of days, which is very fast in astronomy because things are big. Well, what sorts of things do you think we'll find? I mean, I, I guess the excitement is you don't know what you're going to find, but... Yeah, one of the things we're hoping to find are, um, for example, supernovae. These are these giant exploding stars. 
but we hope to catch them right at the moment of the explosion. So that is something that hasn't been done so far. I mean, we've, we've gotten fairly, we've crept fairly close to that moment, but, but we, we're not quite there yet. So one of the things we'll be able to do with LSST is we're going to be able to tell whether an object has changed brightness within 15 seconds. So we'll have that sort of resolution, and then we'll be able to alert essentially the entire world within 60 seconds if something like that happened. So if we do find an object like this, say a supernova that just went boom, we will know it right away. Within a minute, everybody will know it, and then they will be able to point their telescopes to follow it up. And those sorts of things can tell us a lot about the physics of these explosions. I mean, these are some of the most energetic explosions in the universe. So that is really the, the, the promise and, and the sort of payoff we can expect from this sort of automated next-generation survey mission. What about things that don't explode and aren't hot and aren't far away, like, you know, rocks in the solar system? Um, yes. Well, we hope that those things don't explode, in, as in don't hit us and then explode. One of the things we're, we're, we're really trying to do with LSST is to detect asteroids as well. And part of the answer to that question of whether you're going to do it or not is that you can't really avoid it. LSST is going to be observing the entire sky um, over the period of three nights. So if there are asteroids there, we're going to see them. The big question there is how do you identify this is an asteroid? How do you identify it's a fast-moving asteroid? And more importantly, how do you find out if it's moving in the wrong direction that is towards us? And the answer there is you look at whether it sort of looks like a trail. It's like, you know, looking at a car in a, in a movie. If the faster it goes, the more trail-like it looks. Same thing with asteroids in, in, in our images. So we'll be measuring that. So with asteroids, we'll be able to tell within hours, uh-oh, there's something that's fast. It's moving in a certain direction. Do we need additional telescopes to go and follow it up to just to make sure that, that it's not, you know, moving towards us and sending us packing with the dinosaurs? I think that that sort of thing is it's, it's not fundamental physics as in, as in supernovae, but it is something that's extremely important to the whole, to the humanity and civilization as a whole. That's the sort of thing we'll be able to do as well. If you forestall one asteroid strike, you know, you could say that justified the cost of this instrument. Can I ask, what's the price tag for the LSST? So the price tag over, over the, so it'll take us about eight years to build it, and the price tag is roughly $600 million. So it's a big project. It's not the sort of thing that we're used to in astronomy, especially in optical astronomy, but you have to look at it in, in the following way. What we're doing with LSST is instead of building a number of smaller telescopes or a number of individual instruments to answer particular questions in astronomy. We're building one that will provide a database to answer all those questions. Mario Urich, thank you so very much for being with us today. Thank you. Mario Urich is an astronomer who works on data processing for the LSST, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, and he says that first light should be about 2020, 2021, or 2022. So it's a telescope we can all use, and coming up, a plan we can all get behind. More on dodging and profitably dismantling rocks in space. Nothing like a common threat to pull us all together. It's space for everyone on Big Picture Science. So, within a decade or so, with a large synoptic survey telescope up and running hard, 
will have a new comprehensive map of the universe. We'll be able to watch exploding stars in near real time. Of course, we're looking to the past when we look into the universe, so real time is thousands, millions, or billions of years ago. But anyone can watch. I mean, it's making high-tech observations democratic. It's astronomy for everyone. And here's another communal benefit, seeing as the community would rather not get hit by a rock from space, identifying asteroids, learning which bullets have our names on them. But knowing your threat is step one. Step two is avoiding it. So how do we protect ourselves from one of these errant rocks? Well, in the movies. What is this thing? It's enormous. It's an asteroid, sir. It's the size of Texas, Mr. President. We dispatch Bruce Willis. He blasts off to an incoming asteroid and somehow blows it up. But that might not work. And besides, Bruce might have other plans for the weekend. Well, here's another idea. Zap the asteroid with a laser. It's like hair removal on steroids. This is the directed energy approach, and it's one that is gaining the attention of scientists, including University of California Santa Barbara physicist Philip Lubin. So, Phil, there's a lot of directed energy around, like studying for a final. That's directed energy. If I could take a, uh, a five-hour energy drink, you know, and throw it at you, that would be definitely directed energy. <laughs> and well-directed. Uh, and well-directed, yes. So by directed energy, the, the, the common terminology is that which is propagated at the speed of light, so i.e. electromagnetic radiation. At the moment, no one's talking about uh, directed gravity wave energy systems, you know, to take out something or directed neutrinos. It sounds to me like what you're really talking about is is a light beam. I mean, you could destroy an asteroid or somehow kick it with a, a souped-up laser pointer. Is that the deal? Yeah, yeah. It, you know, size matters in this game, unfortunately. So if you have a really big laser pointer, you can, you know, do some uh, uh, do something serious with an asteroid. And, and this is uh, familiar to your audience because many of their clothes are already cut by lasers. Their cars probably have parts which are machined by lasers. It's it's very common these days to laser machine all kinds of things. I believe the parts of the iPhone are laser machined. Some of the optical elements, I think, are laser machined in uh, mobile devices. So it's all around you. Uh, when you write a DVD, you laser machine the, the, the disc. Um, when you you know write a Blu-ray disc, you laser machine the disc. You know it's 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 all around you. It's a question of degree. So what's what's happened recently to make such a an idea possible is that the efficiency of the devices has become a quite large. So we're we're now approaching efficiency of about about fifty percent uh, efficient conversion from electricity into uh, light or photons, as we sometimes just describe the uh, quantum mechanical nature of light. Let me understand that. What you're saying, 50% efficiency, means that if I take a kilowatt out of the wall here, then I can produce a 500-watt a laser? from. It's, it's getting very close to that point. So the, 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 the state-of-the-art at the moment is, is close to 50%. And the, the devices we're looking at are, are not hypothetical future devices, but rather existing devices with some modest evolutionary uh, assumptions about how they will evolve in efficiency. But we're already getting close to 50% efficient, so we're not going to go more than a factor of you know, two beyond where we are now. There, so, so you know, just for the, those who read the fine print, the lasers that we're looking at are currently about 35% efficient. And in our program, we assume that they double in efficiency to about 70% over a 20-year time period. I think that's a very modest assumption, frankly. And it doesn't make any difference whether they do or do not increase efficiency. They still work already. Well, how do they work? I mean, if you aim a really powerful laser, because what you're telling me is that it's now possible to build a really powerful laser, you aim it at some incoming rock, 
What does the laser do to it? Does it melt it? Does it kick it because of the momentum of light or whatever? I mean, how does it get that rock to change its mind? Effectively, you're, you're putting so much uh, power onto the rock that it begins to boil. And when it begins to boil or it begins to sublimate, you're ejecting mass from the rock. So you're not only evaporating the rock, but in the process, you're creating a, a rocket engine on the asteroid itself, which pushes the asteroid backwards. And you can push the asteroid backwards enough to change its trajectory so it no longer is a threat to the Earth. But that seems very clever. I've never heard of anybody trying to uh, deflect an asteroid that way. They usually want to hit it with something, or they have, you know, these gravity tractors and so forth that park nearby and try and pull it out of the way. Why has nobody considered doing this before? We're looking at this from a different point of view. We're looking at it from a non-mission-specific point of view. So we want uh, a system which will be able to stand off from the target. So I think the, the reason no one's suggested before is perhaps because it's so audacious to be able to hit a target at a distance which is relevant here, which are distances of the, sort of the distance from the Earth to, to Mars, the Earth to the Sun. And, and that, I think, is what's, what's new here. Technologically, it's no, it has not been possible in the past to do. It is now possible technologically to do so. In the past, efficiency was not high enough. It is now high enough to do so. In the past, um, no one, as far as I can tell, seriously looked at the question of could you begin to melt a rock at distances which are relevant with a system and what kind of system would that entail? So this is a standoff defense system not a stand-on defense system. So you don't have to go to the neighborhood of the asteroid for this defense to work. Could you do this on the ground? Could you have a big laser installation on the ground and just zap these guys from the privacy of your backyard? Yeah, I, w I would like that if, if we could do that. And we, we actually have looked at this in some detail. The, the typical problem from the ground is the atmosphere. The atmosphere is not stable. And, and even in the best uh, astronomical sites in the world, the atmosphere fluctuates on levels which are unacceptable to us. So while I wouldn't completely dismiss that as a possibility, the more natural place is to put it in, in space where there is not an atmospheric perturbation to cause the, the beam to, to change its, uh, its shape and its position. Well, finally then, Philip, if you can build a, a laser that's this bright, this focused... Sounds to me like it's like the mirrors used by the cowboys in the old films to signal one another that the Indians were over the hill or something like that. Maybe, maybe this could be used for interstellar communication. Yes, excellent question. So we, we've looked at that and, and ran the numbers, and um, the numbers are actually pretty impressive. So if we were to point this uh, laser that we would use, laser array that we would use for planetary defense, if we were to point it at the uh, known exoplanets, so planets outside of our solar system, and ask the question of how bright would it be, the answer is it would be brighter than the brightest star in our sky, assuming that they were sensitive to the wavelength of the laser, which is close to visible. So it not only is, is useful for interstellar signaling, it turns out it can be used for intergalactic signaling. Now, of course, it takes the light, the light travel time to get to where it's going, so you have to keep that in mind. But the, the numbers are truly impressive. You can go out to millions and even, even billions of light years and, and be seen by another civilization that has a similar system. And the implications of that for searching for extraterrestrial intelligence should be pondered because they certainly are um, provocative. Philip Lubin, thank you so very much for being with us today. Thank you, Seth. Philip Lubin is a physicist at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Okay, I like it. Uh, let's blast those threatening asteroids. But, but wait a minute. Before getting engrossed in a scaled-up version of space invaders, maybe we ought to hold our fire because those targets might be worth something. There are at least two companies vying to make a profit with rocks in space by mining them. 
Yep, they intend to pull some very valuable stuff like platinum and maybe even more valuable water out of those rocks, material that would be essential to our spacefaring future. John Lewis is a chemist and professor emeritus of planetary sciences at the University of Arizona. He is also chief scientist at Deep Space Industries, one of two private companies that intend to serve the commercial space sector when the time is right by mining rocks in our solar system. And we don't have to bring the asteroids to us to reap the benefits. Well, the the usual uh, way that people think about this is what is it we are, we could get from an asteroid that would be worth bringing back to Earth? And I think that's really the wrong question. Uh, to me, the right question is what can we get out of an asteroid that would be extremely useful and extremely valuable to us in space? And the answers to that are really a few in number. Number one is water for making propellants and life support materials, air and water to drink, hydroponic agriculture, and um, then metals. And virtually every asteroid we see has uh, lots of metals in them, and about half of the asteroids we see have lots of water. How difficult would it be to mine an asteroid? People have been talking about this for a long time. It's been the subject of fiction. I've seen it in the movies. These guys go up and mine an asteroid, and indeed it always seems to be the case that they're mining for something that would be very valuable here on Earth, not just iron ore, which is not particularly valuable. How difficult is it to do this? It sounds hard. Well, the, again, the basic assumption is that you want something to bring back to Earth that will be marketable and will repay your efforts. Sure, the platinum group elements are in high concentrations in these asteroids, but I've never been able to think of a way of going there for the express purpose of mining platinum and making a buck out of it. It's too far. It's too complicated. But as a byproduct, it's something well worth shipping back to Earth. And also, mining on an asteroid is really very different from mining here on Earth because in zero-G, in the absence of air, you're not going to be using diesel-powered front-end loaders, and <laughs> you're not going to be using big uh, mile-long conveyor belts and so on. It's uh, a very different thing. You're going to be mining relatively soft, dirt-like, regolith-like, powdered rock, crushed rock, crushed naturally, and you're going to be extracting from it materials that are a very large percentage of the total mass of what you're digging. Sounds like a high-grade mine. The first application that comes to mind for me, I mean, setting aside the idea of bringing something really valuable back, like unobtainium or something like that, that, that we could use here on Earth, whatever that happens to be, would be for building space colonies, orbiting space colonies like uh, Jerry O'Neill was talking about in the 1960s. You just need metals, you need whatever, uh, that sort of thing. Presumably, getting these materials to the work site, whatever that might be, in an orbit around the Earth or wherever, uh, is not a big deal because, of course, you don't have to fight gravity to get them on their way. Not just that. I mean, that's something. If you want to bring something back to the vicinity of Earth, that's downhill, not uphill. But you're also producing propellants. And if you have the a factory that is capable of generating propellants for use in space, then you have the means to transport things at your disposal. You don't have to bring the fuel from Earth. I have a friend in New York. She has been approached by some uh, group of individuals that's putting together a company to mine the asteroids. I think their intention is to bring back, indeed, precious metals to Earth. Is this a good investment at this point? I mean, is this practical within a time frame of, say, you know, a dozen years or something like that? 
Well, let, let's just put this in perspective. Is there enough of the stuff out there to be worth bringing back? The answer is certainly yes. The concentration of the platinum group metals and gold and so on in the average asteroid is higher than in the richest known ore bodies for those elements on Earth. So the concentrations are quite impressive. However, they are still minor constituents. You have to process the whole rock to get out the things you want. So your processing equipment has to be sized to handle, well, uh, 10,000 tons of metal for every ton of precious material that you bring back to Earth. And this is why I think economically it makes much more sense to concentrate on making those metals available for use in space where they're much more valuable than they are on the ground. And then just as a sort of an afterthought, a very profitable afterthought, sending the uh, precious and strategic metal residue from the, their processing back to Earth. Let me expand on that a little bit. Uh, one of the things that's very troubling about the long-term future of Homo sapiens, if you will, is the fact that we're running out of stuff, or at least running out. I mean, after a while, it becomes too expensive to use for the sorts of things you're using it for. I'm thinking of copper or zinc or, or well, platinum too, for that matter. Uh, all these are metals that we're, you know, dredging up out of the ground. We use them for our high-tech, gusto-grabbing lifestyles. But within 50 years or something like that, these are the estimates I've seen, it's going to become so expensive to, to get copper that people will be, you know, ripping it out of your house when you're away on vacation. So really my question here is, this idea of mining the asteroids, could this give our society a whole new lease on life for, you know, a, a really long-term future? Well, if you, if you look at Earth's economy now, which is running in the, you know, $50 trillion a year range, you ain't seen nothing yet. Let's suppose that we uh, are intelligent enough to devise a recycling culture. We're trying, right? We're trying. We haven't quite got the whole picture yet, but we're trying. If you have a recycling culture in which you use natural resources to support a human being, then in principle, with only an external source of energy to run the machinery, you can perpetuate that material, cycle it, cycle it, cycle it, and you can maintain a person forever using the solar power. Now, look at the near-Earth asteroids. The material in the near-Earth asteroids is sufficient in a recycling society to maintain how many people from now until the sun dies of old age? Care to guess? Uh I, I think I won't guess. No. <laughs> I'd be surprised if it could uh, last any number of people that long, though. But give me the bottom line. The bottom line is that we know enough about the composition of the near-Earth asteroids to calculate this number. And the number of people who could, be, who could be supported indefinitely is 80 billion. 80 billion from the near-Earth asteroids. I'm curious to know your interest in this, because we're not out there mining anything at the moment. What is it that uh, you hope to see? Well, I am the chief scientist of Deep Space Industries, which is one of the two publicly announced asteroid mining companies, it and Planetary Resources, which my friend Chris Lewicki heads. And we're, uh, we're optimistic. Well, when you say you're optimistic, when do you plan on putting that first dollar of profit, not just <laughs> expenditure, but, but profit, up on the wall behind your desk? The, the first trillion-dollar note on the, on the wall. <laughs> if, if it's going to be that, yes, if they yeah. have them. Well, it, it, it comes down to this. The resources are there. We will do it or we won't. I, can't, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you whether we will go out there 
But I can tell you that if we master the art of using asteroid resources, all of the limitations that we've seen on human population and human access to resources vanish. The solar system out there, the world, the, the, the greater world outside of Earth, totally dwarfs the resources of the surface of our planet. John Lewis, thank you so very much for speaking with us and providing this uh, good news for the long term. A pleasure. John Lewis is a chemist and professor emeritus of planetary sciences at the University of Arizona. He is also chief scientist at Deep Space Industries, an asteroid mining company that aims to offer its services to the commercial space sector beginning in the next few years. You know, it's obviously reminiscent of the gold rush in California in 1849 or the Alaskan gold rush around the turn of the century. But, you know, those all petered out in just a few years. What, what he's talking about here could go on for, I don't know, maybe millions of years. It's a different kind of gold rush. It's not so rushy. It's also a different kind of gold rush because it's a platinum rush and a water rush. Well, that's it's a real rush to think about the uh, the fact that it gives us a long lease on our future. I think that's a great idea. But while both of these publicly announced asteroid mining companies are in the United States, could it be that the country that brought you the Apollo missions is about to be trumped? The sleeping giant becomes the spacefaring giant in Space Race 2.0. That's coming up. It's Space for Everyone on Big Picture Science. Space is not a neutral subject for some people. I am Jim Oberg. I'm a retired rocket scientist down here in Houston and lifelong space nut. James Oberg worked at NASA's Johnson Space Center from the mid-1970s to the 1990s, following which he became an expert in Soviet and Russian space programs. And he hasn't been the only nut obsessed with space. The launch of the Soviet satellite Sputnik occurred years before Dr. Oberg became a rocket engineer in Houston. But that's not why this historical blast-off escaped his notice. The Soviet launch even eluded the folks at NASA because there were no folks at NASA, seeing as there was no NASA in 1957. The agency was set up a year later. Before Sputnik, space was where you turned to contemplate the infinite. You didn't actually put anything up there. So the launch of the socialist satellite astonished everyone. CBS television presents a special report. On the first Sputnik man-made launch. object Soviet in space, space was satellite. delivered top Under secret Soviet style. Until two days ago, that sound had never been heard on this earth. Suddenly, it has become as much a part of 20th century life as the whir of your vacuum cleaner. It's a report from man's farthest frontier. This was really a big deal. I mean, I remember talking to my dad the day the USSR made the announcement, and he was saying, you know, this is bad news for the country because we couldn't do this. I was surprised, personally. I mean, I was just a kid, but I always figured the U.S. would be the first to go into space. And maybe that's why the Soviet announcement not only stunned us, but there were a lot of people who just didn't believe it. Uh, the proof came when radio amateurs started tuning in to the now familiar beep, beep, beep of Sputnik's signal. Although the main Soviet papers today devote more than half their space to the satellite, the headlines are about glorious victory of Soviet science. And indeed, for the U.S. at least, absorbing this development had enormous impact, far beyond the orbiting object itself, which was you know, only about the size of a volleyball. This particular Soviet volley started the space race. But as Jim Oberg, our expert space nut, former NASA engineer and Soviet space historian will tell you, the Soviet dominance in space was glorious 
but brief. Yes, they, they put Yuri Gagarin, the first human, into space, but hot on their heels were the Americans getting into the game big time. The Mercury Project became the Apollo Project as we put a man into space, then hardware into lunar orbit, and then, of course... That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Today, the space race has slowed down, but space watchers like Jim Oberg say it may not have completely stopped. In December 2013, a lunar rover named U-2 was launched, not by the Russians or by the Americans, but by the new players in what may become Space Race 2.0. We're definitely seeing the Chinese make their own original contributions now. They're no longer retreading the past, and they're starting some very imaginative missions that could well outstrip some of the plans that the U.S. and Russia have for deep space flight. Well, let's look at some of those uh, Chinese missions. The first Chinese lunar rover, Yutu, which I think means Jade Rabbit, it's on the moon. What did the Chinese intend by putting this rover on the moon? What were they trying to do? Well, first of all, the Jade Rabbit is, is there to show off Chinese technological virtuosity in space. And there are profoundly valuable things for doing that. It's not show off. It's not just uh, internal politics or the mandate of heaven on the Chinese regime. It shows, uh, again, that the Chinese don't just make cheap trinkets. They make high-tech space stuff, including high-tech missiles as well as high-tech space rockets. So what you're saying is that, you know, this is a demonstration of their capability. It's a demonstration exactly as the Apollo is a demonstration of U.S. capability at a time when the world had come to question it. And uh, just for the same reasons that Apollo was worth doing and was a big payoff, what the Chinese were seeing, I think, is a payoff from their activities. It's already a marvelous achievement. Prior to the rover, 10 years ago, the Chinese launched their first manned spacecraft. I think that was in 2003. Sounds like they've got a theme going here, manned missions, sending hardware to the moon. Where are they ultimately going? What's the next step or what's the step you can expect five years, 10 years down the road? Well, to look at that, you might want to check back at what their last moon probe is still up to. That's Chang'e 2. It was put into lunar orbit several years ago, did a photo survey, and then when it completed the mission and had spare fuel, it was sent on a slow trajectory from lunar orbit out to the Sun-Earth Lagrange Point 2. That's about uh, one and a half million kilometers down Sun from the Earth. There are several other space probes there. This was the first Chinese visit there, and it wasn't even part of the original plan. Then, after cycling around there for half a year, they fired the engine again, moved out from the Earth, and moved out to the point where the asteroid Teutonis was dropping through the ecliptic. Darn near hit it, or got hit by it, but uh, got good pictures of it, and are now, as of last week, 70 million kilometers out from Earth and still in good contact. So it sounds like, I mean, this is a very broad space program. I mean, it sounds like this isn't just about uh, let's pull a stunt. They've got a real program here. To what extent is this part of Chinese military strategy, or is that exactly the kind of outdated image of China that we need to let go of? Their military technology and space technology are not not very well partitioned. And this is an issue that will come back and bother us in the future, that they, that they are basically managed through some of the same hierarchies and the same facilities. But the issue of a broad-based program that you raise is another key question about whether China is making the base, the wide base of technology that they require to do really interesting stuff. And they do have several 
really interesting projects on their agenda. But right now they are still trying to have narrow front of projects that develop specific technology that they know in advance they're going to need in the future. Sadly, that's not the way space technology tends to succeed. That very often you run into surprises, oh my goshes, that require solutions developed by somebody else down the hall or at the next base who didn't even think of your problem when they were doing their projects. There's a cross-fertilization that was the main strength of the U.S. program that solved the kind of problems we did solve successfully. Uh, that the Soviets could not solve, that the Chinese don't think they will need to solve in the future. It might not be the right strategy, and I think that's one of the prime potential stumbling blocks in their ambitions. In other words, they've got this stovepipe uh, syndrome. In other words, they're, they're compartmentalized. A stovepipe syndrome with a Mandarin man management style. Their, their strategic plans are very explicit that they have the Mandarins, the wise men, running the program from the top, that people at the front lines, at the working level, come across problems, send the problems up the chain of command to the Mandarins, who then command down the chain to someone else to go help them. Whenever that's been tried, and it has been tried uh, in various projects in, in the U.S. and elsewhere, it has not been nearly as effective and usually as ineffective when you run into the real problems that always are going to be out there in space. Well, Jim, you certainly have your finger on the pulse of what's going on there. Do you see perhaps the Chinese equivalent of uh, a, a real turning point like the launch of Sputnik in 1957 or, or the American Apollo landing on the moon in 1969? Could they do something that would really shake everybody else up? Yes. We're hoping so, at least. A lot of people are hoping so to, to hope for a, re, a replay, a recapitulation of the, of the moon race. That's not going to happen. But the kind of things the Chinese can do you have to look at the Chang'e 2 mission and it's the ongoing mission to see that they are no longer treading uh, on, on trodden paths. They are doing new things with interesting trajectories and interesting missions. Now, what they've developed with their modules, their test modules, are, are just prototypes for a space station that they say they're going to build toward the end of this decade. There's no reason to doubt that they're going to do that. But the rockets they're building for this are a whole new generation of rockets, a whole new generation of launch pads, fabrication sites. It's a China Space 2.0 that they're trying to get going. It's very difficult. It's the biggest leap they've ever made rather than small and, and modest increments. What it'll allow them to do is take a module like the Tiangong uh, Space Lab, a small space station, and their Shenzhou manned module, and with the bigger boosters and modifications, send that hardware out beyond low Earth orbit, out there somewhere to follow the path of Chang'e 2, out around the moon perhaps, out to uh, Sun-Earth L2 and back. Uh, the technology they have, the hardware that they are now building, put that capability and that mission right within their grasp, uh, potentially uh, competitive with anything that we ever get around to doing in the U.S. or the Russian programs. You're talking about big steps, so I have to ask, what about Mars? Do the Chinese have ambitions to visit the Red Planet? I mean, that would be a scoop. What's most uh, difficult in predicting the Chinese is that while they have been very open, much more than the, the Soviets were during the space race, uh, most of their boasts about the future are clearly derivative of Western literature. Uh, they, read, they read all the space enthusiast websites, and they talk about mining lunar helium, and all the, the, the recitata of, of, of proposals and people's wish lists. There are some things they don't talk about, 
and I find their silence often more uh, eloquent than, 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 than their propaganda. They won't talk about ways to get back to the moon. They won't talk about lunar landing. Or, or, for the matter, much about Mars, except uh, except in, in grandiose uh, uh, braggadocio. So you can look at how they would go to the back to the moon. There are technologies that the U.S. and Russia looked at and bypassed for belch fire kind of rockets and Apollo on steroids follow on that never seem to uh, have any staying power. One of the aspects that I'm interested in is what they want to do with space tethers. Because uh, I'm one of these uh, pioneers, not pioneers, but I appreciate the pioneers uh, of tether systems. Tether systems can give you access from lunar orbit uh, to the lunar surface in a very rapid uh, time frame uh, and, and with a very wide range of capabilities. There's no evidence at all the Chinese are interested in doing that. They don't mention it at all. To me, that's a suspicion that maybe that's one of the things that they're serious about. Now, I can't that, – that, that is magical thinking. I don't know what they can do. But they have shown that they are more flexible. They're playing – they're not playing checkers or poker or out there in space. They're playing Go. And the whole way that, that game works and the whole way you win at that is not so much misdirection as just outthinking and outplanning your adversaries. I can see a lot of surprises. In fact, I'd be surprised if we don't see a lot of surprises over the next 10 years. Jim Oberg, thank you so very much for being with us. Thank you, and watch the skies. Why, yes, he is a rocket scientist, a retired one. Jim Oberg is also a space historian and a self-described space nut. So space, I mean, it was just something that was up there. We saw it from afar. We only had our eyes to see it up until 400 years ago when the telescope was turned toward the heavens. And then suddenly we, we got this tremendous view and began to learn something about what was up there. And now, 50 years into the space age, our relationship with space is changing again. It's not just the purview of one or two countries. Other countries now are, are changing our access to space. And it may be that space, because of these entrepreneurs, becomes a place that all of us have access to once the price comes down. Yeah. Well, you know, it's inevitable. You make these historical comparisons like the discovery of the new world. At first, it's just about exploration, and then it's colonization, and then it's exploitation, and it's a completely altered worldview. And there's another reason that all of us want to keep an eye on space now, and that's to keep an eye out for those large rocks, because nobody wants one of those to hit them on the head. Or even in their own county. It hurts when it, you get hit in the county. <laughs> The members of our production team are never spacey, but sometimes they are out there. Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also support from Google and Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to space for everyone. There's more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, you might find and download the Big Picture Science app. It's on iTunes, Android, and Windows 8. And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because, after all, radio waves get to travel into space, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know that you like the show. And Houston, I think we're ready. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. <laughs>